as our, our reading can be found on page 393 in the Church Bible, uh, 2 Kings chapter 22. That's 2 Kings chapter 22 and page 393 in the Church Bible. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and make him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Make them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple, and make these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also make them purchase timber and dressed stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it, read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of the, this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan and Desiah went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, the son of Harus, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah 
who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Super, John, thank you very much indeed. If you haven't already, you might like to turn back to um, a page. Uh, we're going to start at chapter 21 uh, this, this uh, morning. Um, but before we get into it, let's pray together. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And we pray, our Heavenly Father, that you would feed us this morning on your life-giving word, that word which um, is your son. We need to be fed by him and on him, and we pray you'd strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you solve things when they go desperately wrong, whether that's in the society or in the church? And the reflex response to that, I think, is, is that we need new leadership. Interesting, this week we've had a cabinet reshuffle. Now some people are calling for a new prime minister. And in the Church of England, things have gone, if you've been following uh, this, they've gone badly awry. And not a few are, are crying out for the mitred heads of the bishops and the archbishops. So in our country, we really do sense that change of some sort is needed. And the reason why this matters is we really need to know what to do. Should we do nothing, heads down, just get on with being a good citizen or even a Christian citizen? Some would say, let's pray for revival. Let's ask God to raise up some spirit-anointed preachers, people like Whitfield, Wesley, or Spurgeon. We need another one of those. Others would say, well, we, let's join a political party or a protest march. Or something else, maybe. When things go badly wrong, people instinctively seek a change of leadership. And that can help. And it did circa 640 B.C., when King Josiah ascended to the throne of Judah. Now, his predecessor, Manasseh, was a real rotter. No, he was evil. So when Josiah came to rule, it was like a breath of fresh air. Josiah was an outstanding king. He worked a widespread reformation of religion with far-reaching benefits for the whole of Judean society. But as we'll see, we actually need a king of a completely different order. So as we uh, try and cover the material from 2 Kings 21 
22 and 23 uh, this morning, we'll see three kings. First of all, evil king Manasseh. Secondly, good king Josiah. And then thirdly, our magnificent king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So firstly, evil king Manasseh. Manasseh's dreadful reign is recorded in chapter 21. I'm not exaggerating, it was dreadful. It was 45 years of egregious evil. Three times we're told in this chapter that he did evil. Verse 2, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 6, he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11, he did more evil than the Amorites. Now, that is not what you want on your CV because the Amorites were, amongst other things, involved in child sacrifice. And God says that Manasseh was worse than those guys. He did much evil. And he was an idolater. His dad, Hezekiah, was a good egg, and he destroyed the idolatrous shrines and temples. But, verse 3... When Manasseh came along, he rebuilt those altars, those carved Asherah poles, uh, which were phallic-shaped, and he bowed down and worshipped the stars. He was an idolater. And worst of all, verse 6, like the Amorites, can you imagine he sacrificed his own son in the fire? And he dabbled in the occult. Two things detestable to the Lord. And the result of his evil, idolatrous, child-sacrificing occult religion was not only that he aroused the anger of the Lord, but he also led Judah as a whole astray, so that they too did evil. Here's his legacy, verse 16. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end beside the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Life under Manasseh wasn't the best of times, it was only the worst of times. And I guess we need to ask, is 21st century um, Britain any better than that? Do we see any evil in our society? Have we got our own idols of money and power, of gender and sex, of celebrity and self? And I don't wish to be insensitive, but how many children have been sacrificed at the altar of pro-choice? I would suggest that life today is not so different from life under evil King Manasseh. And things didn't take a turn for the better under his son, Ammon, either. Ammon was a chip off the old block. He too did evil in the eyes of the Lord, verse 20. But his grandson, now he was different. Let's look at good king Josiah, secondly. See, sometimes God raises up a king, a ruler, or a leader who totally reforms society. So during uh, the time of the Reformation, when John Calvin uh, preached the biblical gospel in Geneva, 
it totally transformed not only the worship of Geneva, but the education and the sanitation and the care of the sick and the poor and the refugee. The rediscovery of the Bible under a godly leader brought reforms of a type that many of us long for in our own country. It happened under Calvin's Geneva, under Zwingli's Zurich, and in Josiah's Jerusalem. So right from the get-go of chapter 22, we know that Josiah is going to be something of a wonder boy. Um, the, re- the writer gives him kudos here, verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of, of the Lord. What a relief that must have been. And he is compared to King David. I suppose up until quite recently, it would be like being compared to Churchill. David was the creme de la creme of kings. And Josiah, well, he's just like David. God, you see, is very kind to send such a king hot on the heels of a guy who barbecued his own boy. Now, the writer zeroes in on uh, one year of Josiah's uh, reign, his 18th year, when Josiah was just uh, 26. And on one particular event that happened in the temple, the discovery of the book of the law, almost certainly the book of Deuteronomy here. I guess it's a bit like a a church warden in a traditional church sort of going into a back cupboard and suddenly discovering a, a pile of Bibles that have just been lying there and got dusty. Or somebody in their home pulling off the old family Bible off the, the shelf and taking it down to read. For our purposes, I want us to notice Josiah's response. Because when he heard the words of the book of the law read to him, We see that he did, verse 11, he tore his robe. Now that's an outward sign of inner distress at what he'd read. He'd heard Deuteronomy and he knew that because of Manasseh and all that he did, that God was furious with the nation of Judah. So he sent to the prophet Holder, prophetess Holder, to get directions And she returned a double word to Josiah from the Lord. First bad news, then then good. So first of all, she said, verses 16 and following, God confirmed that his burning anger would continue to burn and could not be quenched. It was curtains for Judah. Judah was done for. But, second verse 18 following, this is the good news. God says to Josiah, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself, and then he goes on, because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I'm going to bring on this place. In other words, Josiah wouldn't be on the throne when the Babylonian exile happened. Josiah's heart was 
responsive to God's word. And in this respect, he is a great role model for you, for you and I. Because God, when God's threats came to him, he didn't sort of just poo-poo them or ignore them. His heart was tender to God's word. Like wax, God's word made a lasting impression upon him. But it is so simple for our hearts to become cold as ice. The heart at first, you see, is troubled um, by the smallest sin. As water, when it first begins to freeze, well, it can't hold up even a falling acorn. But after a while, it can bear the weight of a 45-ton ice road truck. Even so, the heart which is made soft by God is troubled by every sin. A person will hear a sermon, and maybe this is, you can remember this from a time long ago perhaps. You heard a sermon and you were distressed, or you were moved to tears of joy. But little by little, perhaps, your heart has begun to freeze over. It has become cold, impenetrable, and insensitive to God's word. Whether that is a word of correction or even to a word of encouragement. But what we see in Josiah is that his heart was responsive. And so when God's word arrived, he humbled himself. His tears The tearing of his robe demonstrates outwardly his inner humility. But our God, who inhabits the highest heaven, wonderfully also lives in the lowliest heart. And when he takes up residence in someone's heart, it always makes its mark, always. Not only through people tearing up, and tearing up their t-shirts. But God's presence in the human heart always leads to to a personal reformation in life. And it did for Josiah. It does for everybody who knows the Lord. But Josiah as king was was also positioned in, in such a place that he could reform the whole of his society. And he did so with gusto. His reformation is recorded in chapter 23. And it is so thoroughgoing that it makes Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries look like a bit of furniture rearrangement. I really wish we had time to read through the whole of chapter 23 so that you could just grasp just how radical and thorough and unremitting Josiah's reforms were. He not only threw out, I'll just give you a bit of a taster, he not only threw out the pagan vessels from the temple, he burned them, and then he carted off their ashes to a a far place. He got rid of all of the rubbish religious hierarchy, the priests. Uh, He took an axe to the Asherah pole, burned it, ground down the ashes, and threw them in a graveyard. This guy is serious, isn't he? He doesn't want to do a Hezekiah. He doesn't want to treat the idols like Lego that he can kind of dismantle for a bit, only for a Manasseh 
figure to come along and then build it back up again. He burns the idols, he pulverizes their charred remains, and then he dumps them in landfill and says, worship that if you can, losers. That's his approach. Now, Solzhenitsyn gives a political example of the kind of thing that Josiah is trying to achieve. He tells a story of one particular orphanage, and they all had kind of a, a plastic stat, a plaster statue of Stalin. And in this one particular orphanage, it, it kept being graffitied, so that it'd be graffitied, the authorities would come along, and they would repair it, making it all look nice once again. And this, used to, this went on and on. Eventually, the authorities came one day, and what they discovered was that the head, uh, the, the hollow head of this statue was lying on the floor, and someone had defecated in it. Unsurprisingly, the statue wasn't repaired, but removed never to return. Well, Josiah, to put it bluntly, pooped all over Judean paganism. He tears down the apartments of the shrine prostitutes. He desecrates and disables the place of child sacrifice. He incinerates the sun worship paraphernalia. He smashes pagan altars and items associated with fertility worship. He even crosses over the border into, the, into Samaria, purges the high places, slaughters their priests, and desecrates the altars by incinerating human bones upon them. We might say that Josiah went the whole hog. And his reforms were not merely negative. He reinstituted the Feast of Passover, that great feast where people remembered their liberation from Egyptian slavery, when the Lord's judgment passed over them because of the lamb blood painted on the door frames. Stop trusting impotent idols, says Josiah. Only the blood of the lamb can rescue you. Now, the legacy of uh, King Josiah is well summarized in verse 25, chapter 23. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Notice the Deuteronomy 6 language there that Jesus picks up, you remember? Josiah fulfilled the law. He loved God with all of his heart and soul and strength. He was a very good king, in other words. And so, we fully expect to read, because Josiah turned to the Lord with all of his heart, God turned and relented from the calamity he said that he would bring on Judah and he did not do it. That's what we expect. Our expectation is wrong. Verse 26. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger 
which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. Now, this is shocking. When things go desperately wrong, the common assumption, you see, is that we need a Josiah, and that will fix everything. We need a righteous ruler to reform society. We, we need a bold preacher. Well, that's what Josiah did. Uh, verse 2, Josiah preached. Verse 4 following, Josiah reformed. But shockingly, it wasn't enough. We need something more. We need what thirdly I've called our magnificent King Jesus. See, verse 26 is withering. Josiah's reformation was not enough. And that should rock every single one of us to the core. Why? Well, because by nature, human beings operate on the assumption that life is like not a box of chocolates, a set of scales. You see, we understand, don't we, that no one is perfect. But we assume that we can compensate by, for our evil by our good. And this matters actually more than we give credit for. See, we think that Josiah's reforms should compensate for Manasseh's evil. The Muslims think that charity, fasting, or a pilgrimage to Mecca compensates for many misdeeds. Hindus believe that a life well-lived will lead to a better one next time. And Christians, different denominations, operate the same way. Now, we all believe that good works matter. No one's saying that they're relevant. But the Catholic would claim that good works earn merit before God. So the Roman Catholic Catechism states, moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for sanctification. In other words, to become like Christ, for the increase of grace and charity, as it says. And for the attainment of eternal life. But even us Protestant Christians, who say there is absolutely no room for merit, human merit, before God, we denied in practice, don't we? When you last sinned, what did you do? Did you go straight to prayer, asking for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus? Is that your instinctive reaction? Or instinctively, did you feel, I just need to beat myself up a little bit more first about this? I need to pray for a certain amount of time. I need to bury myself in, in the Bible to make sure that I'm really sorry. Maybe punish yourself in other ways. Oh yeah, Josiah's reformation matters. It was good, but it wasn't enough. And we actually know this. We don't believe that philanthropy can, can compensate for evil. We don't think that with regard to Jimmy Savile or Rolf Harris. Of course not. And our best works do not compensate for our evil either. Just as Josiah's great reforms didn't blot out Manasseh's great evil. 
The reforms delayed, but they did not cancel judgment. That's the point. They and we need a better king, a king who can deal with God's anger. And that's the reason why Jesus Christ is so magnificent. He doesn't cancel judgment any more than Josiah's reforms cancel judgment. We wouldn't actually want that if we think about it. We want evil to be punished. It's just that we don't want our evil to be punished. But Christ does something more wonderful. He comes to rescue us from the coming wrath. Something that no king, prime minister, bishop or archbishop could ever do. You might imagine the conversation between father and son in eternity past. My son, says the father, here are a multitude of hell-deserving sinners. Justice demands their eternal ruin. What, what can we do for them? Father, I love them too. But rather than see them perish, I will pay their debt. I choose to suffer your wrath rather than them. But son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. So be it, Father. Though it costs me all I have, I will endure your anger. I will become as a lamb to quench your righteous wrath that it may pass over them at the judgment. Seeing this tenderizes our own hearts, I think. Are you serious that the high and holy God should come down from heaven into this world for me? Do we really, isn't it extraordinary that he passed over myriads of angels and myriads of people and set his love on me? Could it be that he humbled himself and came down to death on a cross for me? That he sent ministers to, to preach his love and mercy to me? Is God really that good? draw up a chair to the fire of God's love and it begins to thaw and to melt even the coldest heart. Uh, old Bishop Ryle is a favourite of mine, so I'm not anti all, all bishops or anything. Ryle was in a different class. I reread the, the first uh, couple of chapters of his Christian Leaders of the 18th Century and it's it really is stirring stuff. He talks about how in the 1700s the, the state of the church and society was abysmal with slavery, squalor, fighting, drunkenness, complete ignorance of the Bible. Christianity was ridiculed. The church was pretty much dead. And then God sent the Wesleys and Whitfield who preached the gospel of the free grace of God. And that's how a sermon on 2 Kings 22 usually tracks. It goes like this. It says, well, we need to rediscover the Bible like Josiah did. 
and that will spark the reformation that we need. That's the usual sermon here. And yeah, of course, we do, we do long for that. I'm not against that. But the point of this passage is that it is not enough because the judge is standing at the door and he will come to judge every man and woman and boy and girl. But there is one way of escape and one way only, even this morning, to turn and to put your trust in our magnificent King Jesus Christ. To receive his rule so that the anger he endured on the cross will be anger that he endured on your behalf and in your place. So that the coming wrath will then pass over you because of the blood of the Lamb. That's what we're going to be celebrating at the Lord's table later. Remembering the magnificent fact that wrath has been absorbed on our behalf by the ministry of Jesus Christ, King Jesus. You and I can't solve the wrongs of our desperately broken society. doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Josiah's reforms were really good. But what you and I most need is rescue from the wrath of God. And Whitfield and the Wesleys were crystal clear on this. And I'll finish uh, with this. Listen to how Charles Wesley closed out his famous hymn, one which we're going to sing later on, Jesus, the name high over all. This is what he said. Tis all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death. Behold, behold the Lamb. Amen.